Well, good morning, and please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes. It's that book that's in the middle of your Bible, in that wisdom section of the Bible, in the poetic section of the Bible, and it deals with issues that are the deep things of life, issues of uh, meaning, issues of philosophy, and uh, just by way of review, you may recall that this is a book that's about life under the sun. This is a book that's about life down here in this world, and this is a world we've learned so far that does not always behave. This is a world that is sometimes enigmatic, and this is a world that sometimes doesn't always make sense. This is a world that we can chase happiness like a wild goose chase that seems like it has no goose at times. This is a world where sometimes our work uh, can feel like toil and it can feel very, very meaningless. And this is a world where sometimes we learned last week our money can slip through our fingers and we're not sure what happened to it all. And in all of these items, we've found that this can feel like madness. Uh, Pastor Tommy Nelson says the book of Ecclesiastes is teaching us not so much that life is a bowl of cherries, rather it's teaching us that life is a bowl of pits sometimes. And so today we're going to see that maybe in this passage more highlighted than any other passage, chapters 6 and 7, as he deals with the topic of meaning as it relates to suffering. Uh, Just as a summary verse that kind of shows you where we're headed in this section of Ecclesiastes, take a look at chapter 7, verse 15. Solomon says this, In this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these. Number one, the righteous perishing in their righteousness. Number two, and the wicked living long in their wickedness. Do you see what he's saying? Do you see the problem that he's raising in the text for today? He's saying, why do bad things happen to good people? And conversely, he's also saying, why do good things happen to bad people? In other words, why in this world under the sun do good people die of cancer very young and bad people live to 95? This is what C.S. Lewis called the problem of pain. In theology, we call it the problem of theodicy. And so that's the topic of today's text. Before I get into the details, I want to start with a true story. Uh, Probably one of the most significant books I've ever read on suffering is by Jerry Sitzer. It's called A Grace Disguised. I would highly commend this book to you. It's very helpful. Uh, The core of the book is his own personal story and his own personal uh, account of the loss that he experienced back in the autumn of 1991. The setting was rural Ohio. Jerry Sitzer was driving with his wife, with his mother, and with their four children in their minivan, and that's when the unthinkable happened. Their minivan was tragically struck that night by a drunk driver going out of control at 85 miles per hour. Uh, Immediately, uh, life began to spin out of control. Jerry, uh, who survived the accident, turned around and assessed uh, the damage Uh, He managed to pull all of his family out the one door in the minivan that was still functional. He began to perform uh, mouth-to-mouth resuscitation on three of those family members to no avail. And the horrific scene outside of his car, the complete pandemonium that ensued, will be forever, he says, etched in his mind and in his heart. It was an absolute nightmare. He says this in the book, quote, I felt literally dizzy and nauseous from the vertigo of such grief. I paced the hospital hallways like a caged animal, totally bewildered, unable to think rationally. I could not stop crying. In a moment, in a terribly unexpected moment, Jerry had lost his wife, Jerry had lost his mother, and Jerry had also lost one of his children 
his four-year-old precious daughter. Think of that. Three generations gone in an instant. Jerry suddenly found himself to be a widower, a single dad, and tasked with fathering these three still young children all by himself. Uh, He writes in his book, he says, The next morning I found myself at the funeral home looking at those three coffins. And as those three coffins were opened before me, he says, at that moment I felt myself slipping into a black hole of dread and oblivion. I remember, he says, the realization sweeping over me that I would soon plunge into the darkness from which I might never again emerge as a sane, normal, and believing man. Can you even imagine circumstances such as these? I hope that you'll never have to face such abominable and terrible evil and suffering in your life. But I bet you have in some way, shape, or form had to face difficulties and sufferings of your own. And when you do, when I do, we tend to all ask this question on the screen. Why do good people have to suffer? Uh, The philosophical problem of suffering, as articulated by David Hume and before him Epicurus, goes like this. If is God willing to prevent evil and suffering but not able, then he is impotent. Is he able but not willing, then he is malevolent. Is he neither able nor willing, then why call him God? That's a pretty formidable argument, right? Theologians call this the problem of suffering. It has been rightly called the greatest problem there is facing the Christian faith. And I don't know about you, but this problem for me is not a philosophical problem. It's a personal problem. It's something that we've faced on a very personal level. This is the question we ask ourselves every time we encounter grief in our lives, every time we experience sorrow, every time a loved one gets chronically ill. We wonder, why does God allow suffering in the first place? Now, there are all kinds of losses and illnesses and and issues of suffering. There is disability, there is divorce, there is abuse, there is unemployment, and there is even death. Some losses are reversible. Other losses, though, are irreversible. A reversible loss would be kind of like a broken arm that one day would be healed again. An irreversible loss, metaphorically speaking, is like an amputation. They're never coming back. That limb is not going to grow back. Those kinds of losses we know in life are not temporary. They're permanent. It's those kinds of losses that are the most difficult. It's those kind of losses that are in view in the passage for today. So let's get specific. In my own personal life, I've experienced watching a close family family member uh, suffer physically through cancer and pass away. I've experienced watching a close family member develop MS and uh, multiple sclerosis eventually took uh, my brother-in-law's life. As a pastor, of course, I've walked through some really, really dark uh, days and dark valleys with people at our church. I've counseled with young couples who can't seem to be able to have children I have stood in front of a casket and tried to offer words of comfort to a family, uh, grieving, knowing full well the person inside was way too young to be in a casket. And we see that kind of thing, I see that kind of thing, and I'm sure you do too, and with that kind of suffering, we go, God, what are you doing? How can you just stand idly by and watch all the pain and the suffering of this world and this evil uh, that occurs in this world because, God, you could have stopped it. 
And if you wanted to stop it, you could, but you didn't stop it, and I can't figure out why. Ever been there? Yeah. How are we supposed to find any meaning in that kind of madness? That's the topic of this section of Ecclesiastes. There is wisdom for such suffering. Thankfully, the Lord does not leave us alone in these matters. And Solomon, the Kohelet, the teacher, the sage, is going to tell us how to deal with such unimaginable suffering. And the way he's going to do that is he's going to say, if you want to find meaning in the madness, meaning in the suffering, you have to back way up and start questioning some of the questions behind the question. You have to actually start some of the assumptions that you have before you formulated the question to begin with. Why do good people suffer? Well, he's going to ask us this question in chapter 6, verse 12. He's going to say this, for who knows what is good for a person in life? The word good there is the Hebrew word tov. It's going to be the key word in our passage. Biblically, the word tov or good uh, is the word that is used in Genesis chapter 1 when God created the whole world and he called it good. He called it tov. And, And typically in the Bible, things that are tov, things that are good, are things that are bearing fruit. What is good is that which multiplies. That which is tov, that which is good in the Hebrew scriptures, are that which produces life. And here he asks this question, who knows what is good? Who knows what produces life? And this word will be repeated nine different times in this passage. What is good? I'll try to point it out as we go along. In other words, Solomon is questioning here right off the bat saying, do you think you know what is good? Maybe, Solomon says, maybe you don't always know what is good. And so he's going to ask us some hard questions. There's three assumptions that he's going to call into question in our passage today, and it breaks down quite nicely, actually. Why do good people suffer? Well, the assumption number one that Solomon's going to question is he's going to say, wait a minute, prosperity isn't always good. And then in chapter 7, why do good people suffer? He's going to say, wait a minute, adversity isn't always bad. And then finally, assumption number three, at the end of chapter 7, he's going to say, why do good people suffer? Well, hold on. There are no good people. And so that's where we're headed, and it breaks down like that. But before we get there, let's pray. God, thank you for preserving this text so that we might find some sense of meaning and significance even in the most difficult pain. And for those of my friends who are not experiencing this as a philosophical exercise today, but a personal one, Holy Spirit, we would ask for your divine comfort, uh, the God of all mercies and the God of all comfort. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So thank you, Lord, in your word that you tell us, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Uh, Teach us from your word, we ask, for open ears, open eyes, open hearts, for Christ's sake and for his reputation. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. Movement one, prosperity isn't always good. Chapter six, verse one starts with this block of text. Solomon says, I've seen another evil under the sun, and it weighs heavily on mankind. God gives some people wealth, possessions, and honor. Sounds like prosperity, right? And, noth- and, and so, so that they lack nothing their hearts desire. But God does not grant them the ability to enjoy them. And strangers enjoy them instead. This is meaningless, a grievous evil. Pause there for a second. What this means is that someone is given great prosperity in their lives, but then they grow up and they die. And then strangers, he says, enjoy it. Maybe there was an auction, maybe there was an estate sale, we don't know. But someone else enjoys the fruit of their labor, enjoys the fruit of all the hard work of their lives, and all that they had gained in their prosperity does not provide any lasting meaning for that very prosperous person, right? Solomon says, take a look at that. Prosperity is not always good. 
In fact, there's one person in the New Testament that Jesus calls a fool, and it was a very prosperous person. You might recall from Luke chapter 12, he said, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. And so there's a way in which prosperity does not bring us any lasting meaning in this life when we are not living our life before the face of God. Even if that person has a family to inherit the prosperity, Solomon says that can be meaningless too. Take a look at the next chunk of text. Verse 3, a man may have a hundred children and live many years, yet no matter how long he die, he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. Even if he lives a thousand years twice over but fails to enjoy his prosperity, do not all go to the same place. So pause there for a second. Here's the second guy, and what this text means is he's given a measure of prosperity in his life, but he does not know God. So there's no eternal significance to his life. Does his prosperity bring his life any transcendent sense of meaning? Solomon says no. Why? Because he loses it all. Doesn't matter if he lives a thousand years or two thousand years, he's still going to lose everything, and that results in utter meaninglessness. It all doesn't matter. Prosperity in and of itself will not bring any lasting meaning. In fact, it might bring you trouble in life. In fact, it might actually separate you from the God of all the universe. Just think about this as applied to our own country. My grandfather, Bill Henschel, Pop-Pop as we affectionately called him, uh, lived as part of the the generation that was raised, you might say, in adversity. He was raised through the Depression. He served as a pilot in World War II. And then they all went through it together. They all went through rubber drives. They all went through aluminum drives. They all stood in potato soup lines and all of that. Lots of adversity. But they learned to be frugal. They learned to be responsible. They learned to be patriotic. They learn to be appreciative. They learn humility. They learn gratitude. They learn to appreciate a paycheck for 50 cents a week. They work their way through college, and then they laid their life on the line. That's why they're called the greatest generation. But then they had kids. And then they grew up, and we had great prosperity in this country in the 50s and 60s. And a generation of kids grew up who never knew such hunger, who had cars in high school, who had two TVs, who did not know what a depression was. They only knew runaway inflation. They'd never stood in line for food. They always knew the food was going to be at the grocery store every single time. And many, not all, this is a stereotype, but many in that generation turned out to be a little bit more impulsive, less grateful, more rude, more immoral, and more entitled and unappreciative. So there's exceptions to that, but you get the idea. The point is, prosperity isn't always good, and adversity isn't always bad. We tend to think of adversity as something we should always avoid at all costs. Solomon says that's not wise. The reason why prosperity will never bring you any lasting contentment is this is how God has set up the whole universe from the get-go. And this is what he says in 10 through 12. Take a look at this and just carefully pay attention because it's kind of hard to understand. He says, whatever exists has already been named and what humanity is has been made known. No one can contend with someone who's stronger the more, words, the more the words, the less the meaning, and how does that profit anyone? 
And there's our verse, for who knows what is good for a person in life. So, who knows what is good? The answer is not man, God. Look at verse 10. Here's what that means. Whatever exists has been named. Meaning, God has decreed what humanity is. God has decreed, namely, that humankind will not be happy in what he possesses. Verse 11 says you can try to say lots of words about that. You can take up your argument about that scientifically and philosophically. You can't change it. Why? It's already been named. Meaning, God has decreed that mankind will only be happy, not through his prosperity, but in knowing God. This is what the Westminster Confession of Faith says. We said this a couple of weeks ago. What's the chief end of man to glorify God? This is the way that it has all been set up. It's already been named. God has made a decree. We might rail against that. We might rebel against that. But God has made the rules, and it will not be changed. Man cannot contend with God. He is stronger than man. It's just the way it is. It's like gravity. You don't like gravity? Okay. What does that matter? You still can't change it. It just is. This is the way the world is set up by God. Man is created to know and glorify God. And we cannot change that. And so we can try to contend with God, verse, verse 10 says, who's stronger than us. But who are we to argue against God? Who are we to rail against God? We who are feeble and frail. There's a gap. Uh, this part of Ecclesiastes reminds me of what happens at the end of the book of Job. You might remember in chapter 38, God actually shows up in the book of Job. And God says things like, hey, Job, where were you? When I laid the foundations of the earth, tell me if you understand. Brace yourself like a man. I'll question you, Job. You answer me. What God is saying there is there's a gap. I created all of this, and someone who created all of this must have knowledge that's deeper than your knowledge. And so if I'm a God who could create all of this, then that must necessarily uh, mean to you that there must be some things that you do not know. You, you need to accept your limitations. A God who could create all of this might also have reasons for suffering that you might not understand in that little, Dave, that little pea brain of yours up there. So here's the point he's trying to make. We have to concede our limitations. Imagine if my kids are watching a movie and I walk into the living room to grab something off the coffee table and I glance at the television for five seconds to see what movie they're watching and then I walk out. And then you come up to me the next day and you're like, have you seen that movie? How was that movie? And I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, not very good. Character development wasn't there, storyline stunk, I'm not going anywhere, don't worry, don't, don't bother. You'd be like, wait, wait, a, wait a minute, you watched that thing for five seconds. How are you going to know all that stuff? Friends, here's what Solomon is saying. You've been here on earth for five seconds. You're going to tell God he doesn't know what he's doing? You're going to assume that you can understand all the reasons for the good things that he does in this world? We're finite. We have inherent limitations because of that. You have questions. Why do good people suffer? Okay, let me ask you this. How do we not know that God is also not holding back 99.9% .9 of the suffering and evil that could come our way if he had not been protecting us? How come the suffering and evil we encounter in this world isn't like 10,000 times worse? Answer, we don't know. There's so much we don't know. So when you hear people rail against this issue and say, how could a good God allow such things? How come the question is not, how come there's not also so much good in this world? Why, why does so much good exist in a world like this? Why, if this is a world of meaninglessness and just blind chance, why are there things that we enjoy so much? Why is there stuff like music and uh, friendship 
uh, or the intimacy of marriage or philanthropy or so much beauty out there in nature or, or delicious food. Why do Reese's peanut butter cups <laughs> exist if there is no God? <laughs> That's probably a better question. Who knows what is good? Solomon says God alone, and God, God says prosperity isn't always good. Why? It doesn't bring any inherent meaning. It might even keep you away from God, and that's definitely not good. And now he moves on to assumption number two. Why do good people suffer? Well, assumption number two, Solomon's about to say, well, hold on, adversity isn't always bad. This is the whole point of chapter seven. Uh, chapter seven, verse one, Solomon begins with this. He says, a good name is better than fine perfume. So what is good? A good name. Again, that's that word tov again. And what makes a good name? The answer is character. Sometimes when people's names are mentioned, it's almost like a foul smell. You know when you smell a certain smell that you really just hate, like you have this face of disgust whenever you're like, oh, what is that? What is your least favorite smell? Like, like for me, it's rotten eggs. I just, I don't know what to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to vomit. Rotten eggs. Or maybe for you, it's that towel in the shower that needs to be washed like a week ago, you know, that smell. Or, or maybe it's garbage that's been rotting and you drive through Staten Island like, oh, man. <laughs> or maybe it's just sewage. You know, what is your least favorite smell? Solomon says that's the look on people's faces when some people's names are mentioned. Oh, yeah, so-and-so. Solomon says don't, don't be like that. Instead, be the kind of person whose name comes up in a conversation and the person's look on their face looks like they just smelled the sweetest aroma that they've ever smelled in their whole lives, like it's smelling a, a sweet perfume. That doesn't necessarily come through prosperity. You can meet a very prosperous person who produces this kind of reaction because of their character defects. The reverse is true. You can meet someone who doesn't have a whole lot of prosperity, but when you hear their name, though they may not have two nickels to rub together, their character and their loving spirit is so sweet and so pleasant, and the memory that you have of them is, brings you such joy because of their good name. So this is what chapter 7 is all about. What produces good character? Spoiler alert, it's not prosperity, it's adversity. And so let's start with a few things that might produce character. Solomon's going to name four, if you're taking notes, death sorrow, rebuke, and patience. First, death. He says this, it is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. Again, notice the word better there. That's the Hebrew word tov. What is good? What produces fruit? What brings life? Solomon says, going to a funeral is good. It's better than going to a festival. Why is that better? Because people don't go to a birthday pass, they bash, they don't go to a wedding reception, they don't go to a frat party and start asking about the deep things of life and how wisely they're living there. But every time you sit there at a funeral, it's like a divinely appointed opportunity for you. Death is holding out this invitation as a teacher. Facing death invites me to be a person of death, a depth. It invites me to be a person of character. And so death can teach me about the limitations of life and what I need to focus on. When I was a kid, there was this show called Fame. And the, the theme song for that show had this line, Fame, I'm going to live forever. Solomon says, no, no, no you're, you're not going to live forever. Actually, the sooner that you find out that you're not going to live forever, the better. 
There's a tombstone that has this message inscribed on the outside. Maybe you've seen this before. It says, pause here, stranger, as you pass by. As you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so shall you be. Prepare for death and follow me. This is what Solomon is saying in chapter 7. That acknowledging the end of my life helps me focus on what's most important, my character. And the most adverse situation I could ever face in my life, death, can actually build character into me when I focus on it. So adversity isn't always bad. Death, number two, the second source of adversity, sorrow. Verse three, frustration is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. There's our word good or tov. What's good? What produces fruit? Frustration. A sad face. Sorrow. Why? Too often we aren't growing in those times of laughter, in those times of happiness. Hard times, rather, though, they can shape us. Pain, though, that can be instructive. It's the sorrows of life that can lead us in the right direction. It's the sorrows of life that can lead us back to God. Why? Because it's in those sorrows that we start realizing we're not really in control here. In fact, this is what Sister says in his book. He says this, loss deprives us of control. I don't know about you, but I like to be in control. Does anybody else really like to be in control? Some of you are not raising your hands because you want to be in control right now. You're like, you're not controlling me. I'm not putting my hand up for you. I don't want to. I like control. I have all kinds of expectations about how the future is supposed to pan out. And I live with all kinds of assumptions. Some of them are unconscious. Some of them are actually very explicit about how things in my life are supposed to go. But then I suffer. And all of a sudden, the tomorrow I was planning on isn't there anymore. All of a sudden, there's been an accident. All of a sudden, there's a very sick family member. All of a sudden, the doctor calls and says, I need to see you. Tomorrow would be good. And then in a flash, all of a sudden, that tomorrow that I was expecting is gone. And I feel so helpless. And in that moment, I realize I'm not actually in control at all, and maybe I never was in control. And it's in those moments that we start looking for the one who is in control. It's in those moments that we start reaching out for the God of the universe who sovereignly is in control. And this is why, in many ways, suffering can lead us back to God. And this is what we were made for, to know God. So adversity isn't always bad. We can be shaped by things like even death, even sorrow. Third, Solomon's going to say, you can also be shaped by rebuke. Verse 5, it is better to, be, to heed the rebuke of a wise person than to listen to the song of fools. What does he mean, the song of fools? Maybe he means this song by Justin Bieber. Here's the lyrics. Baby, 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 oh. Baby, 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 no. Baby, 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 oh. Like one baby wasn't enough, bro? Like what? Is that the song of fools? Well, in my generation, we had songs that were much more meaningful than these kids today. We had songs like this. Bomp, ba, bomp, ba, bomp, ba, bomp, bomp. Bomp, ba, bomp, ba, bomp, ba, bomp, bomp. Dang, a, dang, dang, ding, a, dong, ding. Blue moon. Some substance right there. Is that the song of fools? 
I'm kidding a little bit. Actually, if you look at verse 5 again, what he means by the song of fools is the advice that a foolish friend will give you not to worry about making bad choices in your life. The song of fools is a song that says, hey, you only live once, YOLO. Everybody's doing this. Don't worry about the consequences. No need to live by your values. Hey, you're in college. Just do whatever you want to. Just live for today. Eat, drink, be merry. That's the song of fools. Instead, he says, what's better, what's tov, what produces fruit, is if you actually heed the rebuke of a wise person, someone who actually cares about you, someone who cares enough about you to tell you the truth. This is the rebuke that's mentioned so often in the book of Proverbs that characterizes wise people. Laughter's fine, but Solomon says there's something much more effective, something better, something that's good, that's tov, something that has some substance, something that's weighty, like a rebuke from a friend who cares. How many of you had parents who said, well, this hurts me more than it hurts you? (laughs) True. Adversity is not always bad. It's not easy, but it is what shapes us. It's what builds us. And then verse 6, he says this, like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. This too is meaningless. I love making fires. Uh, But if you take a bunch of small sticks, a bunch of thorns, and you use them as the starter, as the kindling, you're going to find that those burn up really fast, really quickly. They make a lot of noise, but then they're gone. They don't endure. They don't last like the Yule log that burns for hours and hours and hours. Just like that, Solomon says, there's fools out there. Oh, they're going to burn up fast. They make a lot of noise. They give a lot of advice, but it doesn't endure. It quickly dies off, and they're carried away like smoke. Why don't you try listening to a Yule log in your life that's been burning for a few hours? There might be some wisdom there. And so this is what shapes us sometimes, the rebuke of a wise person. So what shapes us? Death, sorrow, rebuke. Number four, patient endurance. Verse seven, extortion turns a wise person into a fool and a bribe corrupts the heart. Extortion is when someone compromises on their principles for a price to avoid adversity. Solomon says, don't do that. Have integrity. Don't be bought. This is where real character is tested. This is how you get a good name. And that's what you want. Verse 8, the end of a matter is better than its beginning. And patience is better than pride. Don't look for shortcuts. Solomon says, see the project through to the end. Have patience. A prideful person, they can brag about beginning the job and brag about all they think that they're going to accomplish, but the patient person who actually finishes it, who actually does the job, it's the patient person who accomplishes the goal. That's what matters in the end. Verse 9, do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. Meaning what? A good person, a person of character, learns to control their emotions, even in adversity. Is it worth being the kind of person who loses their cool? Solomon says, no, that's what fools do. You be patient. You hold your cool. You be cool. Turn to your neighbor and say, be cool. Just be cool. Why does Pastor Dave make us do that stuff? That's certainly not cool. Verse 10, do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. Here's what that means. Here's what happens when we face adversity and we get a little older. If we aren't growing in our character, we get cranky. And we fantasize about how things used to be so much better. Solomon says, don't don't do that. 
Don't get lost in that. Don't gripe and bellyache about the present generation and talk about the good old days. That's what's called nostalgia. You know what nostalgia is? Selective memory. You had problems back then. Are you kidding me? You had big problems back then. You're not remembering the problems you had back then. And there's good stuff about today that you're not acknowledging either. Nostalgia, Solomon says, is not wise. Don't do that. You're ignoring the opportunities right in front of you today to avoid the adversity that you're facing by dreaming about how things used to be so much better. Solomon says, don't do that. Face reality. Face the challenges, the adversities that you have right now today. This is our time. This is what God has for us right now today. You'll notice in chapter 7, all of these dangers that I'm mentioning are escapisms. We don't like adversity, so we seek to escape. These are all ways to escape adversity rather than patiently endure and build our character and our good name, right? Extortion escapes your responsibility to maintain your integrity. Impatience is escaping your hard work. Anger is escaping your responsibility to be cool and to cope. And nostalgia is escaping the difficulties of the present by fantasizing about the past. So many people seek to escape adversity. Solomon says, why don't you face it head on? When we face adversity, we seek to escape. This is why people sometimes, after hard suffering, get drawn into addictions. We don't want to face adversity. We want to escape it. Solomon says, don't do that. Adversity is not always bad. Instead, here's what you need to do, if I can summarize his message. He's saying this, embrace the adversities of your life as opportunities from God for your growth. If you come into my office to meet with me as a pastor and you're going through a hard time, I will spend most of that time listening to you and empathizing and expressing compassion towards whatever you're going through and we'll pray together. And at the end of that session, I might say something that really annoys the heck out of you. I'm warning you now so you're ready when it comes. I'll say, don't miss this blessing. Yeah, because it's there. Don't miss it. God wastes nothing. He's always teaching us. So this is the point of chapter 7. Adversity isn't always bad. That's true in society. That's true in our personal lives. This is what he means in verse 13 and 14. So consider, think, consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. And there they are, both good times and difficult times. Times of prosperity and times of adversity. And both, Solomon says, are from the hand of God. What this means is that when adverse things happen in your life, you can't change them because they've been bent by God himself. Don't misunderstand. If you can change something, go ahead and change it. If you can feed the poor or fight for the oppressed, if you can bring laundry soap to help those in feeding hands, if you can do something... Uh, to make a difference, then go ahead and do that. But Solomon says there are certain things that will happen in your life that are bent. They're crooked. You can't change them because you can't unbend what, what God has bent. So Solomon says consider, reflect, ponder, think about these things. Pray, Lord, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, the wisdom to know the difference. I don't know all the reasons for suffering, but for me, one of the things suffering does is it weans me off the things of this world like a little baby. And without adversity, without suffering, I would be like a little child who ate chocolate and who ate sugar all day, and it destroys me. But God knows what I need. So sometimes he brings adversity. 
The reason we struggle with this is for, because of a misunderstanding. Pastor Bob shared with me a quote last week that I thought was super helpful from Dr. Doug Groteis, who lost his wife tragically. And he said, the reason we struggle with adversity and suffering is this. He says this, we see suffering as something God is doing to us rather than something God is doing in us. We see suffering as something God is doing to us rather than something God is doing in us. Let me show you an image. This is an image that depicts how the soul grows through loss. The blue circle represents you. The red circle represents some kind of pain or loss. Now, you could try to jettison that red circle. You could try to deny that it's there. You could try to make it as small as it possibly can be and compress the pain. Or you could try to escape the pain and pretend it doesn't exist. None of those things will work. Rather, the way to make this pain and suffering less prominent in your life is to grow through the pain, to face it and allow God to expand your soul and expand your understanding of what's happening in him and with this world and allow this suffering to teach you all kinds of things that only pain can teach you and you can grow larger and stronger and increase in your capacity for love and compassion for others. Now, to do that, you might need a little help. To do that, you might need a friend. And so I just want to say briefly, if you're experiencing suffering and loss, we do have a ministry here called Stephen Ministry. And what that is, is about a dozen trained lay caregivers in our church that are trained just simply to come alongside of you through any kind of loss or difficulty and develop a one-on-one -on -one weekly uh, relationship with you where they walk alongside of you through the pain and the suffering. If that's something that would benefit you, please don't hesitate to reach out to me. We would love to support you in that way. In fact, that's what Jerry Sitzer found to be really healing in his journey over the last 25 years or so. In that book, he speaks about the unspeakable agony and describes how he and his children began to piece their lives back together again, and it was inside of the community of God. And of course, this is a process. Hear me when I say this is not instantaneous. This is a process. And I don't want to minimize the process. But Sitzer says, by the grace of God, miraculously, over time, in the community, quote, the utter bewilderment had given way to contentment and deep gratitude. And he describes this journey that he went on that was redemptive, not just for him, not just for his kids, but for many, many others as he shared his story of loss and pain. And he said something odd in that book on he says, quote, as strange as it might sound, I wish that every man could experience what I have, though without the acute suffering. But I don't know if that's possible. And then he said this. He said, quote, I did not get over the loss of my loved ones. Rather, I absorbed the loss into my life like soil receives decaying matter until it became part of who I am. Adversity isn't always bad. Prosperity isn't always good. Why do good people suffer? Solomon has one more assumption to call into question, and this is a bitter pill. Movement three, why do good people suffer? Good people don't suffer. There are no good people. Um, in fact, if you would, just drop down with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20. Solomon says this, Indeed, there is no one on earth who's righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. No one. 
Here in the Old Testament is one of the clearest statements of a sound Hamar theology, the doctrine of sin. We see this in a lot of other places. Most clearly, we see this in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 3, Paul says there's no one who does good. No, not one. I tend to have an overly inflated view of myself. But the truth is, you and I, we are all sinners saved by grace alone. Except for the mercy of God, we would all end up in the judgment of God in hell. I don't like to hear that. I don't like to hear I'm as bad as the scriptures say I am, but but it is what the scriptures teach. Look at the verse on the screen. This goes for me. I'll just speak for me. If I got hit by a bus today, that would not be unjust of God. In fact, if you knew me, you might wonder why God waited till I'm as old as I am to hit me with that bus. My family is like, amen. My family is like, God, why didn't you do it when he was 17? Right? I say that because sometimes suffering invokes this thing in us and it's like, that's not fair. And there's a degree of uh, trustworthiness in that statement. Suffering is not fair. Also, if you want to live in a life that's fair, if you want fair all the time, then you have to get rid of the grace of God. You have to get rid of the mercy of God. And fair is not going to go well for you. Why do good people suffer? Good people do not suffer. There are no good people. Verse 28. Solomon says this, While I was still searching but not finding, I found one upright man among a thousand, but not one upright woman among them all. Now I'm going to get in trouble with my wife right there on on the front row for this one. Two girls. Let me explain to you what this means because it's a figure of speech. He's not saying men are somehow morally superior than women. That's not what he's saying. When you read Hebrew poetry, which is what Ecclesiastes is, the most common technique they use is something called parallelism, synonymous parallelism, where one line repeats the next line, just says it a little differently. In, In Hebrew poetry, they didn't rhyme words. They rhymed thoughts. And so what these two verses are saying are the exact same thing. It's a colloquialism. It's a figure of speech. Kind of like in our day, we would say one in a million, like it just doesn't exist. This is what Solomon is saying. There are no good men. There are no good women. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. No matter how many good deeds you have done, if you hold up your life next to the perfect righteousness of God, you would say along with the Apostle Peter, Lord, go away from me. I am a sinful man. And this is what he says in the one final verse in our text, verse 29. This only have I found. God created mankind upright. He created it good but they have gone in search of many schemes. Here's what Solomon is saying. God created this whole world good. Tov, very good. But something has gone wrong, and what has gone wrong is not God. What has gone wrong is humankind. We have allowed sin to corrupt our entire race. So though mankind cannot straighten what God has made crooked, mankind is certainly capable of making crooked that which God first made straight. And that is the doctrine of sin. Why do good people suffer? No good people suffer. Because there are no good people. Except. Except. Except there was one. Only one good person has ever suffered. His name is Jesus Christ. And he suffered for you. He lived. He died. And he suffered to redeem you from the penalty of your sin. 
to forgive you of all of your sin and to give you a hope in the future with no suffering and to redeem all of the suffering in this world such that because of Christ and his marvelous plan of redemption, none of this suffering is ever meaningless. It's all purposeful. It's all significant. It's all part of his sovereign plan for your good and for his glory. This is what Jerry Sitzer finally discovered as a source of peace in his life. He says this towards the end of that book, which I would recommend to you. He says, the book of Revelation describes a scene from the future in which Jesus himself embraces and restores all those who have suffered and died. He wipes away their tears and heals their brokenness. Then he welcomes them into the bliss and splendor and peace of his eternal kingdom. And then he says this, in the Christian faith, death does not have the last word. Resurrection does. This is our great hope. And friends, to the degree that you embrace this suffering Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, you can face whatever comes your way. The way you will face suffering is by recentering, recentering your life, not around prosperity, not around the things of this world that glimmer and flash. Rather, you would recenter your life around the person who can never, ever, ever be taken away from you, the person of Jesus Christ. With him, no suffering is meaningless. Without him, it is all insignificant. I encourage you to place your trust in him. As the worship team comes, allow me to read one more poem written by Corey Timboon, who experienced unimaginable suffering during the Holocaust at one of the concentration camps. And she describes this poem using the image of tapestry. Listen to these words. My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors. He weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper, and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. Place your trust in Christ and your hope springs eternal. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how grateful we are that your word does not shy away from some of the most difficult things we could ever face in life under the sun. The losses and the difficulties and the pain and the suffering can make this universe seem so cold and seem so unfriendly. And so help us, dear God, to remember that you are always weaving your sovereign plan. Help us right now today not to miss the blessing of even the current adversities in our lives. For we know you waste nothing. You are our only hope in life and in death. We ask this for Christ's name. Amen.